Is it a mission impossible to bring a successful TV show to the big screen? Well, bring on the masks, the big con, one of the biggest box office names in Tom Cruise, add a lot of very cool stunt work, Brian De Palma to direct, and keep Lalo Schifrin's theme song, and impossible becomes reality. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzato. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. These are just some of the things we'll examine as we are cracking the code of spy movies. Today, we're looking at the pre-title sequence of the 1996 movie, Mission Impossible, 25 years after its release. So let's go. First, there are reports that Tom Cruise was indeed a fan of the TV series from the 60s and 70s. So that's what drove him to do the movies. Now, the TV show had a set formula that this movie needed to somewhat follow to hook the TV fans. And that became more important when they stabbed the fans in the back by making Jim Phelps turn into a mole. There were a lot of people upset about that. Yes, there were. Now, the interesting thing is the TV show didn't have a pre-title sequence. And this podcast is about a pre-title sequence. The movie does. In the TV show, it started with titles that showed some very short clips of action from the current episode. It then moved to something called the tape scene, where Briggs or Phelps played a media, usually some kind of a tape, that would self-destruct after explaining the mission. Then the show had what they called the dossier scene, where the team was picked by either Briggs or Phelps, and they showed you these folders, and he would drop down the, the people he was going to use for the mission. And then it was followed by an apartment scene where the team went for a final briefing on the mission. All right, so let's compare the formula to the start of the movie. In this movie, unlike the TV show, there is a pre-title sequence, as Tom just said. It's short, the shortest in the Mission Impossible franchise. In most Bond and Mission Impossible movies, the pre-titles are at least four and a half to five minutes, with some as long as 15 minutes. The opening sequence was originally going to introduce a love triangle between Jim Phelps, his wife, and Ethan Hunt. This was removed after showing it to a test audience. So the pre-title sequence that does open the movie brings us to Kiev. The impossible mission force is trying to obtain the name of a contact in Minsk. It's going to be Dmitry Mediev, and they're trying to get this from a Russian. Now, we don't know why they want the name, at least now. It has almost nothing to do with the rest of the plot. We don't know who any of these people are in the room, and no names are used during the entire sequence other than Dimitri's. The guy they're questioning in the room here is named Zazimov, but we got that from the credits. They don't actually mention that in this scene in the pre-title sequence. We end up finding out that this scene was a piece from a different mission. So in essence, we have two missions in this one movie. Kind of reminds me of Goldfinger with the mission in the pre-title sequence blowing up the drug lord's stock of stuff, and the real mission of the movie, Goldfinger. This scene has what we believe are two goals. The first, it sets up the film for the TV fans as it answers a big question that they would have. How much of this movie will feel like the TV show? Second, we're introduced to part of the team from this pre-title mission. Notably, Jim Phelps is not there. Now, the first goal they hit, kind of, Brian De Palma was quoted as saying the movie would be nothing like the TV show when they started filming. However, there are elements included that will comfort a fan of the TV show. Now, interestingly, when you listen to Brian De Palma's comments, who directed the movie, 
most of the cast from the TV show didn't like the first Mission Impossible. Greg Morris, who played Barney Collier in the TV series, he actually left the premiere halfway through calling it an abomination. (laughs) So they're trying to hook the TV fan, but the actors didn't. And a big part of that is what they did with Jim Phelps, turning him into a mall. Yeah, I know Martin Landau did not like it either. Yes. Well, I mean, the the original plan was the whole team was going to get killed off and they were going to start fresh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so nobody liked that. Yeah, he pulled out once that happened because they'd wanted him to be in it. And then, you know, like I said, Greg Morris, he left the he left the preview and it actually really turned me off a lot. The first setup here, which is what the pre-title was about and the and really the pre-title in the next few minutes of the movie really were to hook the TV fan and then they stab him in the back. Yeah, there were a lot of people upset about the whole plot with Phelps for sure including Peter Graves, who played him in the TV show. In future Mission Impossible movies, the pre-title sequences do more to set up the rest of the movie plot and mission. As you mentioned, this pre-title sequence is very short. It's just under three minutes in length. And it almost doesn't need to be in the movie because they could have followed the TV format very easily. But Jim not being in that room or on that mission had to be established. Plus, it allows two common themes of the TV show to come through right up front, and we'll get to those in a few minutes. Now, the pre-title sequence starts with Jack Harmon. We don't know his name at the time, but that's what his name is. At a computer looking at a video monitor. Where is he? We're not really sure. Is he looking at a live scene, or is it a recording? There's a woman behind him who we learn later is named Hannah. On the monitor, we see a man with a mustache talking to the man we're calling Zazimov. Who are these people? We really don't know. And the only name we hear in the whole pre-title sequence, as you had mentioned before, was Dimitri. So what's going on here? We don't know right at the beginning. And the guy in the mustache says, it was good that you called us. You see a woman on a bed. She looks passed out, asleep, maybe dead. We're not sure. But there's blood on her, which makes me think she's probably dead. And Zazimov says, I don't know what happened. We were at the bar drinking, having fun. I don't even know how I got here. The guy with the mustache opens her eyelid, and it appears that she is dead. Yeah, she doesn't look too good. (laughs) Now, there's a very similar scene to this in The Godfather Part 2. In The Godfather Part 2, Senator Pat Geary wakes up next to a dead woman. He tells Tom Hagen that he can't remember what happened. I don't know how it happened. I passed out. Hagen tells him that he just needs to do what I say. However, Geary hadn't killed her. He had been set up and framed and never knew it. So, kind of cool. The Mission Impossible pre-title sequence has Zazimov in a similar situation. I love how they tied this to The Godfather Part 2. The Godfather series is one of my favorites, and I loved that scene, the way they just conned him into this. Here in Mission Impossible, they pay homage, and they have a great twist to it. Also notice that Jack Harmon says, come on, come on, she's been under too long. So who is she, and is she alive? I think Jack Harmon thinks she might be. Mm -hmm. So what does Jack mean when he says, she's been under too long? Yeah, I mean, we're getting these little hints as we're watching, because we don't know what's exactly going on. So we're going to get to that. Now, after this, the guy with the mustache hits Zazimov. And as I said before, he's trying to get a name from Zazimov. It takes about 30 seconds before Zazimov gives up the name Dmitry Mediev. 
and it looked astonishingly easy to get him to give it up. However, Zazimov's shirt has blood on it. Is that his blood? Or the blood from the woman? Who knows? Has he been worked over for a while? And we're just getting to see the ending of it? We don't know at this point, but he does look like he's been beat around a little bit. So we see someone, Jack Harmon, on a portable computer device. It's some kind of device. We don't know where he is or what he's doing exactly. He's searching and finding the name Mediev Dmitri with an 831-54 date and designation as American Consulate Kiev. That will end up being where the next mission starts. So there is a connection between this pre-title sequence and the ultimate mission and plot of Mission Impossible 1, the rest of the movie, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I think it, it cracks me up that the guy says Mediev and Jack knows to type in M-I-E-D-I-V. So you have an I-E in the first half of the last name and in the second half of the last name, he's, pronounced differently, and Jack just knows how to spell it correctly. Yeah, he's good with Russian names. It's, <laughs> that's, you know, these guys are trained. <laughs> Come on. While he's doing that, we see Hannah behind Jack using an eyedropper to put some drops into what we later find out is vodka. Hmm, this could get interesting. Yeah. Hannah brings out the tray with the tainted vodka, and the guy with the mustache says, now we drink. Now, I didn't hear him say, now we drink. I don't know what language they were using there. Yeah, so I actually turned on closed captioning because okay. I couldn't understand it. And yeah. he was actually speaking a different language. And with Maybe the closed Russian. captioning, it said, now we drink. Okay, all right, all right. So the guy watching on the monitor says something like, Zadruzie. And holds up a cup to toast and he drinks. It looks like it might be a coffee cup or something. <laughs> anyway, Zasimov drinks his and the guy with the mustache dumps his out. Yeah, I guess whatever Hannah puts in the drinks wasn't good. <laughs> Plus, if a guy gives you a drink and dumps his out. <laughs> that ought to be a clue. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Even a non-espionage person would look at that and think, uh, yeah, no, I'm not going to drink this. <laughs> you know, I, I, I rewatched this a couple times, and the, the guy with the mustache is slightly behind Zazimov. So maybe he didn't see him yeah. pour the drink out, but you had to hear the liquid hit the floor. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, we see Zazimov drink it, and he falls to the floor. Again, like with the woman on the bed, we don't know if he's dead or alive. We just don't know. However, Hannah stretches his legs out as the guy with the mustache is looking at his head. Now, my guess is he's not dead because... Most of the time in the Mission Impossible series, they didn't kill people for information like this. If there was if there was a killing, it would be towards the end of the movie of the main villain. And this guy wasn't the main villain. They were just trying to get information out of him. So I think this was just a big con. Mm -hmm. And that, that was actually the name of a book that they based some of the TV series on. So I think this was just a big con. And they knocked the guy out with whatever they gave him in the drink. Yeah. Right, so this then gets very interesting for the viewer of the television show because the guy with the mustache, he knocks over a table, opens a door. We see Jack hand him a small case, and the guy with the mustache pulls off his mask, and we see Ethan Hunt. Yeah. Now the TV viewer should be happy. The masks are here, and they give it to you right up front, yeah. and they were used very often in the TV series. This, to me, is why I actually think they did the pre-title sequence 
was to get the masks front and center for the TV viewer. Yeah, to make I, them I feel comfortable. I think the television show Mission Impossible was my first exposure to using masks as a disguise. It was a terrific show. However, the concept was not new when the TV show debuted. In our research, there are numerous examples of movies that predated Mission Impossible that use masks. Masks have been used mainly for two purposes in movies, to cover some sort of disfigurement. This was used starting back in in movies like the 1925 movie, The Phantom of the Opera, or the 1933 movie, Mystery of the Wax Museum. Or two, they're used to deceive someone into believing a person is someone else. Like in the 1935 movie, Star of Midnight, The 1963 James Bond movie from Russia with Love, as we all recall, and the 1963 movie, The List of Adrian Messenger. Mission Impossible uses the second approach, the TV show, which ran from September 1966 through March 1973, used masks extensively for this purpose, and it is great to see them used here and in the future Mission Impossible movies as well. Yeah, I was so glad to see that right up front that the masks are there. That was such a big part of the TV show. Now, anyway, Hannah bangs on this wall and it separates. This room was a setup, sort of like a movie or theater stage to make Zazimov think he was somewhere else. It was like a warehouse with a room in the middle of it. Paul, this con on Zazimov. And again, in the Mission Impossible series, cons are a big part of what they do. Yeah. So Ethan pulls off the top coat he was wearing. He looks into the case that Jack had given him, and he sees a syringe kit. Meanwhile, these two large guys pick up Zazimov and remove him. And again, as we said earlier, we have no idea if this guy's dead or alive. Yeah. So Ethan takes the case. He goes over to the woman on the bed, and the the person that Jack had said she was under too long, he actually gives her this shot, and uh, she she comes too. This is a perfect Mission Impossible scene. If you've seen the TV series, then you love this part where they take the walls down and it was all this fake set to fool this guy. Martin Landau, who played Rollin Hand in the TV series, said once, the ideal mission was getting in and getting out without anyone ever knowing we were there. That's exactly what they just did to Zosimov. So, yeah, it was a beautiful con. Terrific connection to the old show and... For fans of the old show, you feel like, oh, yeah, this is good. Yeah. Now, there is something that bothers me with this part of the scene. Uh-huh. And we've talked in other podcasts about how James Bond takes the time to do things before leaving a fight scene, giving him the potential of getting caught because of it. Yeah. I can think of his stopping to throw the flowers on Jack <laughs> Bouvard and Thunderball. Right. Or when he stops to grab some caviar and on Her Majesty's Secret Service. Royal Beluga, north of the Caspian Sea, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So those are two examples of this. But in this scene, we see Jack Harmon very worried about how long Claire has been under the influence of whatever they gave her. However, after the deed is done with Zazimov and they knock him off or whatever, it takes Ethan 16 seconds to get to Claire to give her the injection. This room is small. And this time included time to what looked like go out of his way to knock over a table for some unknown reason, remove his mask, take off his jacket. In fact, from the time he was given the injection kit, it took 12 seconds. Ethan, what the hell are you doing? Don't you think you should have waited to do those things till after you took care of Claire? 
Jack Harmon made us think that she was up against the clock. Yeah. Ethan's delays could have potentially killed her. Yeah, or, or maybe Ethan knows, look, I've used this drug on thousands of people before. I know exactly how this works. Cool. Settle down, Jack. I'm, I've got control <laughs> of this. Don't worry. It <laughs> uh, could be. <laughs> anyway, I, it is a good point, though, because it does look like he's spending some time doing stuff when there is some kind of impending doom, perhaps, happening here. But anyway, yeah, I mean, why didn't Hannah have the injection kit on her tray when she was walking in with the vodka, for instance, or whatever, right? She was behind yeah. Zazimov, so he couldn't really see her. And if even if he did see it, he wouldn't know what it was, especially after having been beat up all this time. That would have saved some time to get her the injection. He almost made the mission impossible to save Claire. Uh, <laughs> but but again, maybe he knows better. Point, and it does make you wonder. Yeah. Anyway, the woman asks, did we get it? And Ethan says, we got it. And we're instantly taken to a lit match. The fantastic Lalo Schifrin title song from the TV show and the title sequence start. Yes, this is feeling right for me as a fan of the TV show. Now, you know, Alan Silvestri, who writes music for, I think, over 100 movies, whom I'm hoping is a relative of mine, so I could talk <laughs> to him someday. Uh, he was originally hired to score this movie but then he was taken off the project now, now no offense to your potential relative <laughs> but if he was going to change the opening number i would have taken him off that project as well yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, in, uh, in the end danny elfman was credited as the composer or really in the credit it's music by yeah. uh, in the title sequence the theme however was the mission impossible theme composed by lalo schifrin although this podcast is on the pre-title sequence we also wanted to briefly comment on the title sequence, the tape sequence, and the apartment sequence. We mentioned those earlier as part of the TV show formula. So I think it's important to mention here because they could have put the titles really at any point in that section of where you had the, the, the mini mission here and then the next two things that happen. So since the goal from the producers had to be to placate the TV show's audience, at least initially, mm -hmm including the self-destructing tape with the mission on it, going through the team, even though they did it differently than they did in the TV show. And then having the apartment scene where they go over the plan, it gave the movie a very familiar feel. It wasn't exactly following the formula, but they were very close to following the formula here. Now they do blow the formula way up after the apartment scene. Yeah, I think the title sequence was designed for that to further hook the TV show fans, and that's good. Lalo Schifrin's wonderful Mission Impossible theme song and the lit fuse instantly brings back the viewer to the TV series, and it really is magnificent. You it's cannot beat theme. that. You cannot beat that. So yeah. the next part of the title sequence keeps the nostalgia going. As the music plays and the opening title credits are shown, snippets from the rest of the movie are shown. This lets us in on who are some of the characters that we will see, as well as it gives us a glimpse of some of the upcoming action. Not too much, just a tease. The TV series did this as well in its opening titles. It's a nice touch they carried over for the movie, but unfortunately didn't carry it over to Mission Impossible 2 or Mission Impossible 3. We wonder yeah, I was really bummed when I saw the titles in those because I really like all of the little clips there's some tie-in in the title sequences but it's not this little 
snippet thing that we see here yeah. or we saw on the TV show. And I really kind of liked it because you'd see something in the snippet and be like, oh, I got to see what that is. And it makes you want to watch more. Yeah, I kind of wonder, it makes you wonder why they didn't continue it because it seemed to be popular. So they cut it out for two and three, but they bring it back starting with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. So, you know, maybe they got some feedback and said, hey, you know, that was cool. Bring that back. Yeah, bring that, you, you took away so much from the TV show. At least bring that back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the tape sequence also hooks the TV fan, of course. The tape lays out the mission. We are introduced here to Jim Phelps, the only character returning, really, from the TV show. Not the actor who played him, but the character. It includes the lines from well, the... Well, and, and actually, one, one of the things that I like about that is that the IMF, the Impossible Mission Force, they brought different people in for different missions. Moving the staff around for their missions that the IMF is doing yeah. was actually common in the TV show. So seeing different people in different roles, but then having Jim Phelps there kind of felt normal. Yeah, and I like the whole concept that they can use other people and new people. And they, they had the freedom of introducing new characters into the, into the shows if they wanted to. And really, they could do that for the movies as well. In the tape sequence, it includes the line from the TV show, Your Mission, Jim. Should you choose to accept it? That's in there. Also in there is, as always, should you or any member of your IM force be caught or killed, the secretary will disavow all knowledge of your actions. And also, this tape will self-destruct in five seconds. All of this is brought forward for the Mission Impossible TV fan. Good stuff. In the television show, there was a tape sequence, your mission should you choose to accept it, followed by the dossier sequence putting the team together in the first two seasons. These are combined in the movie with the assignment and team designation all in the one tape. The good part about the pre-title sequence, titles, and mission briefing is that if you remember the TV show, you'll feel nostalgic. However, if you don't know the TV show, you're still getting what you need to know as these sequences set the movie plot very well. So the beginning of this movie should make any fan of the television show happy. The masks the self-destructing tape, your mission should you choose to accept it. They all make for a fun opening, especially for that TV show fan. Unfortunately, the movie goes off the rails of the formula after this, but the first 10 minutes or so with this movie really hook that TV fan in. Yeah. All right. Hey, that was a fun decoding session. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Well, that wraps up our coverage of the pre-title sequence of the first Mission Impossible movie. Thanks for listening. This has been Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzotto. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Please subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, right now through your favorite podcast app and on our YouTube channel as well. Tell a friend about us, too. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it.